Welcome everyone, I'm your host, Emerson Green. So this is from a recent live stream in which I responded to a video arguing that math proves God's existence. I'll join you again at the end to add a few more objections that occurred to me after the stream ended, which is exactly the sort of thing that usually prevents me from doing live streams, though I did have a bit of fun with this and one reason was the open hangout afterwards. I posted the join link in the live chat and a few listeners came on for about half an hour and we talked about the incorruptibility of saints, miracles, tradcaths, and a few other topics. So if you'd like to hear that, you can see the stream on YouTube. Here on the podcast is just the response to the Math Proves God video from Redeemed Zoomer, but for one, it's edited, not live, so it's a lot less tedious to listen to, and two, I've included a postscript with a few things that I hadn't considered the first time around. So because some of you hate me and want me to suffer, you've asked me to respond to a video by someone named Redeemed Zoomer, who is a Presbyterian Minecraft YouTuber. And he's made a very popular video about how math proves God. Um, yeah, if you're seeing this live, this might not stay up. I might have to like repost it after I edit it. Um, because the thing is, I just don't want to make a whole script. Like, I don't want to write out my thoughts to this video because it just doesn't warrant that. But I will do this live stream. So, uh, yeah, I guess let's get started and find out why uh, math proves God. Does God exist? Many atheists think there's no reason to believe in God because we have science to explain everything in the... Okay, so I'm going to pause this a lot. Sorry in advance for that. But, okay, so he says, you know, some atheists will say, or atheists say, there's no reason to believe in God because science can explain everything in the universe. So I certainly don't say there's no reason to believe in God. Um, that was basically one of the mistakes I talked about in the atheist mistakes about epistemology video. So, of course, there are reasons to believe in God. There are also reasons to not believe in God. And, you know, if you think about, like, how dogmatic you'd have to be to say, like, yeah, there's this controversial thing, like this, you know, vexing issue. And um, there's literally no reason to think that I'm wrong about this particular issue. Unlike basically every other issue, there's no reason to think that my side is wrong about this. Or my opinion could be wrong about this. No, there are obviously reasons going for and against uh, whatever it is you think, and this is no exception. So if you are an atheist who says there's no reason to believe in God, then you're just wrong about that. But yeah, then this argument, oh, because science can explain everything in the universe. I guess if I were trying to steel man this, it would be like the best version of this thing he's alluding to is Oppie's argument from naturalism, where it's like, well, look, we have a natural explanation for all the stuff in the universe. And uh, the natural explanation is going to be ultimately, on the whole, simpler than the supernatural explanations. So we should favor the simpler explanation. So we should be atheists, you know, we should be naturalists. It's, it's not even right to call it a straw man. I'm just, I'm trying to think of like the best version of what he could mean when he says, Science can explain everything in the universe, therefore God doesn't exist, or like there's no reason to believe in God. Um, yeah, the argument would instead go like, there are natural explanations for everything in the universe, 
the natural explanations are going to be simpler according to like most you know metrics of simplicity like simpler in kind like simpler um in number of adjustable parameters you know so like it's going to be simpler on the whole and we should really really care about which explanation is simpler i guess and uh that's why we should be naturalists so is able to explain the natural world that's what it's for but by definition science cannot tell us whether there's anything outside or above the natural world in other yeah that's incorrect like almost every like every there are some real crazy um, assertions coming up i've seen this video in advance but like just the idea that like science cannot in principle by definition lead to any supernatural thing or like it's just that doesn't make any sense to me like if you're looking at someone from the discovery institute who's arguing for intelligent design by appealing to science or something i don't think they're just confused about definitions like i i think they're wrong about a lot of the things they say but i think it would be a pretty weird objection to like Oh, all these Discovery Institute people, they're just confused about the definition of science, which in principle can't point to anything supernatural. So like, I mean, first of all, I can imagine a world, not like our world, where science would incorporate supernatural entities into explanations and like that would just be ordinary science. And secondly, if science is in the business of explaining the natural world, then Assuming the natural world is going to look different depending on the supernatural, then why wouldn't science be able to point to that, you know, at least in some way? Like, if you think God exists, presumably you think the natural world looks different than it otherwise would, you know? So, like, I don't see any reason to think, like, oh, no, by definition, science can't point to anything supernatural. Why not? Besides, just saying like, oh, by definition, like there's not going to be like, you know, this bifurcation between supernatural and natural. You're not going to get like a perfect definition of natural and like a perfect conceptual analysis of supernatural where it's like, OK, we have like the clearest possible understanding and definition of these two terms. And now we can just sort them like that's not how those words even came about. We know what they mean because we know how to use them. We can like categorize things as natural and supernatural and Maybe there are some edge cases, you know, like paranormal things or something. But like, there's not a perfect conceptual analysis of supernatural where it's like, oh, well, you, you know how those terms came about, natural and supernatural? Well, people sat down, philosophers sat down and came up with like a perfect definition of those concepts and then applied them in a principled way. It's like, yeah, that's not how those terms came about. So why are you even looking for a perfect, flawless, counterexample free definition of those terms? Like the bifurcation is useful, you know, like I think it's a totally useful bifurcation, but it's like you can't get too hung up on the fact that you can't define these things perfectly. Even this distinction he's making where it's like, well, science does one of these things, but not the other. Maybe we could doubt that just on the basis of the fact that there's no perfect conceptual analysis of natural and supernatural to begin with. But additionally, I can imagine science incorporating things that we typically designate as supernatural into their explanations you know why is that unthinkable and we could also just say that the natural world is going to look different depending on the existence and exact characteristics of the supernatural world so yeah i think he's wrong about what he's saying here for words whether there's anything supernatural generally when people speak of god they mean a supernatural all-knowing mind who is everywhere and can do anything so what is math and what does it have to do with God? 
Math is about numbers and information about those numbers and ways numbers connect to each other, but where do we find all this math? We can't see math, we can't touch math, we can't taste math. Math is only in the mind. We find it simply by thinking about it and figuring more and more things out. But wait, math also explains things. Math can explain everything from simple counting to the movement of planets. For any thing you can think of, there's a bunch of math that explains what's going on, even down to the atomic level. So if math is only in our minds, but it also explains the natural world, then where does it come from? That's a hell of a sentence, dog. <laughs> if math is only in our minds, but it also explains the natural world, then where does it come from? <laughs> you are correctly pointing out that we cannot taste or hear math. However, I can smell math. We can't, okay, math is not only in our minds. Like just because we know about math, by thinking about it, you you correctly point out that we know about math by thinking about it. Like I have mathematical intuitions, and that plays a huge role in um, my mathematical knowledge. But that epistemological question doesn't really automatically lead you to this answer about the ontology of math. Yeah, epistemically, we learn about math through the intellect. You know, like we think about it. We have mathematical intuitions. That doesn't mean it's only in our minds you know, or only in a mind, just because we know about it by using our minds doesn't mean that it only exists in our minds. That's just like a, you're just mixing up epistemology and ontology there. And just the idea like, oh, math explains stuff in the world. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. But you have to be careful about uh, what you mean by explanation. But anyway, you just shouldn't mix up mathematical ontology and epistemology here and say, well, because we know about it, not through like ordinary empirical observation but we know about it by thinking about it and using our intellect and rationality or something it's like okay that doesn't mean it only exists in our minds there's two possibilities really one is that math is just something we invented to explain what we observe in the natural world and that would mean the origin of math is natural but the other possibility is that math is already there because it controls the universe and we've discovered it and if that's true, then the origin of math is supernatural. Another hell of a sentence. Um, <laughs> like, okay, I'm fine with this whole like distinction between, oh, yeah, we either invent math or we discover it. Sure, that's fair enough. But then saying, like, if we discover it, then it's supernatural. You know, because like, at first I wasn't sure if I even wanted to respond to this video because I'm like, oh, I don't know anything about philosophy of math. And then you see stuff like this and you're like, okay, well, I know more than that guy. <laughs> like, um, A standard form of mathematical realism is Platonism. That's not considered supernatural. You know, it, it transcends the natural world. There are these abstract objects, you know, that are robustly real, but nobody calls them supernatural. They're non-natural. But yeah, I mean, just going from if math is discovered, therefore it's supernatural is a pretty weird step but then just saying like okay math controls the universe this is what i was saying when i'm like you have to be careful about what you mean by explanation uh, math doesn't control anything like it's a, it doesn't have causal properties like it doesn't have causal influence I, it's just math doesn't cause things i don't know what um if i'm trying to be like a little bit more charitable like okay maybe he's not denying that math is causally effete or that abstract objects are causally effete when he says control he means it in like a very broad kind of sense okay well if that's the case if i'm interpreting it that way 
then it's just false that if something controls the universe or controls something, then it's discovered and not invented. You know, like it's really easy to think of social constructs or things that we um, invent that wield control. Like, I think it's totally obviously correct to say that banks control things. They have control, right? Like banks have some amount of power. Contracts control people and they are social constructs. Banks are social constructs. Uh, we invented the banking system, but they still have control. Okay, so it's just not true that if something has control in the universe, then it's discovered, not invented. That's not true. I do think we discover math for what it's worth. We don't invent it. I guess, like, why do I think that? You know, I think that because we don't seem free to impose whatever mathematical structure we like on the world. And when I say that, I don't mean two plus two can just equal whatever we want. Like, oh, because two plus two can't equal whatever we say at this at this exact moment, therefore it's discovered, not invented. That would be like a really crude version of what I'm saying. There still might be like implications and entailments of other things we've said or like more foundational axioms or what have you. But still, there should be more freedom if math is constructed and not invented. Like we we should be more free to impose different mathematical structures on the world, but we're just constantly bumping up against the stubborn objectivity of math. So that seems to lend some support to the idea that we're discovering things and, and not just constructing them or inventing them. That's one reason. And I guess another reason is, I mean, surely we can agree, like mathematical realists and anti-realists, we can agree that uh, a very desirable feature of our theory of math, like our ontology of math or whatever, we want the result that something like two plus two equals four is true. We want that to be true. That's very intuitive. And further, we want it to be true in a very straightforward way. So we want stuff like two plus two equals four to be true. And we want it to be true in a very straightforward way, not in a way like, well, you have to adopt like this really weird theory of truth and then it's true. Or you have to adopt some like fictionalist um, like stance towards it. And then it's true. It's like, okay, hopefully we can agree that it would be most desirable to have a theory where stuff like that is true and it's true in a very straightforward way. And I, like I said, I assume the anti-realist would grant that, but they would say like, what do anti-realists say? There is a problem with how we know about this kind of stuff. You know, like there's this problem of epistemology, like how do we know about abstract objects that have no causal effects and that sort of thing? Um, so then they think, well, sure, that's desirable, but we can get rid of that if realism just brings about too many problems. But I don't see how it's a huge problem, this kind of like epistemological issue. You know how people always use the companions and guilt argument, like from they argue from math to like moral realism, like these kind of stand or fall together. I think that that's like a good way of thinking about the issue in many contexts. And I feel like it, it must work the other way. So like I, I have thought a little bit more about moral realism. So if it's true that these things stand or fall together, then I, I'm probably committed to some kind of mathematical realism. Here's why the latter option is correct. Math contains infinite information. There's an infinite number of numbers, each with their own individual properties. And there's an infinite number of numbers in between any two numbers. And we keep discovering things. 
pi, which is the number that explains the area of a circle, has an infinite number of digits that we keep discovering by doing calculations. If we were just making this stuff up, we could make pi be whatever we want it to be, but we can't do that because we know that that's not true. Yeah, so that's what I was talking about a little bit earlier. Like, this is like a very crude version of what could be a good argument. Like, yeah, math seems pretty stubbornly objective. We can't just make up, we can't just, we're not free to just impose whatever mathematical structure we like on the world. Now, I don't think this is a very good version of that argument because I don't think it's true that like, if something is fictional, you can just say whatever you want about it at any time. That seems to be like a persistent confusion with this guy. If it's a, you know, fictional, excuse me, then you can't say anything false about it. If it's fictional, you can't say anything that's not true. But like, if I say Harry Potter is a unicorn, that's not true. Okay, so you can say false things about fictions. And like I mentioned earlier, you can, there can still be like implications and entailments of other things you've said. So I don't think it's the case that like, no, you can just make up whatever you want if mathematical realism is false. No, I mean, it's true that you should have more freedom. Like if mathematical realism is true, then you are not free to impose different mathematical structures on the world and construct things differently. And if anti-realism is true, it seems like you should have more freedom in constructing things differently. It doesn't mean anything goes. It just means you should have more freedom and you won't be constantly bumping up against the objectivity of math because it's constructed. We could construct a different mathematical system just like we could construct a different banking system. We know that all this information is out there somewhere, but it can't be in our physical universe because our universe is finite and math is infinite. <laughs> why, why does he just say that like it's a fact? Like it's just an established fact that the universe is finite. <laughs> like... Where did you come by that information that like space is finite and time is finite? Do we know that? No, we don't. Why are you just asserting it like it's an established scientific fact that the universe is finite? That means math contains every possible combination of numbers. And if we use numbers as code for letters, then math contains every possible combination of letters as well. That means every book that has ever been written already exists encoded in math somewhere. In fact, every book that possibly could be written already exists in math. And smokes weed for the first time. If we use numbers as code for particles and their locations, then you could say there's an exact copy of our universe encoded in math. But there's also more stuff in math. So that's why math can't possibly be contained just within our universe. But that's just the beginning. There's many pieces of evidence in math to show that math has a designer. Here's an example. One time someone discovered that this simple equation makes a very interesting shape when you graph it in the complex plane, and this is called the Mandelbrot set. But people have analyzed this shape and have found some very scary things about it. Some very scary things about it. Oh, dude, you gotta warn me before you show me a Mandelbrot set. What's amazing about the Mandelbrot set is that you can zoom in infinitely and you'll keep finding new things. Over here, you can keep finding more and more copies of the Mandelbrot set. Terrifying. That no matter how far you zoom in, you could even zoom in really close to something like this. And it takes a while, but look, there's another little baby Mandelbrot set. Alternatively, you could go into this region and find completely different things. On the left side of this thing, you'll find these weird elephant-shaped things that have spirals that go on forever. And you could even zoom into the side of one of the spirals and find new spirals. 
that repeat infinitely and keep generating new infinite patterns like this. Or you could go on the other side of the elephants and find these weird seahorse-shaped things that have different kinds of spirals that are connected to each other, and once again, they keep going on forever. You can zoom in infinitely, and you'll keep finding new patterns, but like I said, it's a different type of pattern. Seriously, anytime you explore the Mandelbrot set, you can find brand new things, possibly things that no human has ever seen before, because like I said, there is infinite complexity and infinite information in this one shape. That's why this little shape is so scary. We did not invent the- I, I cannot relate to the emotion you're having right now when you say that it's scary. It's because we discovered it by accident. I think it's like pretty awe-inspiring. Like, I don't know, sometimes I'll watch like a number file video or something. And that stuff is so cool, but scary. But we did not discover it in our universe. It has infinite complexity, so it can't possibly be in our universe because the universe doesn't have infinites. Again, why, why do you keep saying these things? <laughs> the universe doesn't have infinites. How do you, what? Why do you think that? We discovered it just by calculating it. So where the heck did this thing come from? Basic common sense says that someone designed this, but no human designed it. <laughs> Basic common sense says someone designed this. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Does it? Basic common sense says someone designed this. I have literally never heard that before. I have no idea what you mean. Like, I can see it with like a cell or like some biological stuff, but like, have you ever noticed that, like, when you square something, it gets bigger? Basic common sense says someone designed this. <laughs> like we said, math only exists in the mind, so its origin must also be a mind. Math contains infinite information, so this mind must be all-knowing. Math controls the universe, so this mind must also be all-powerful. I mean, what the fuck? Like, every inference here is, like, insane. I, but anyway, math does not exist only in the mind. You're mixing up epistemology and ontology, I think. And then uh, what was that last one? It controls the universe, so it must be omnipotent. This, But no human designed it. Like we said, math only exists in the mind, so its origin must also be a mind. Math contains infinite information, so this mind must be all-knowing. Math controls the universe, so this mind must also be all-powerful. I mean, literally every single sentence is incorrect. And math is beyond and outside of our natural world, so this mind must be supernatural. And we have just... Oh my god. ...described God. All these numbers and mathematical facts exist in the infinite mind of God. But it's not just mathematical truth that exists in the mind of God, but also moral truth and any kind of truth at all. Goodness, truth, and beauty are just mere opinions of the human mind, unless there is a supreme mind, God, who overrules all human opinions. Because math is beyond time, space, and limits, the existence of math proves the existence of God because math is in the mind of God. As the great scientist Galileo- I feel like I only have to repeat back what he says and be like, well, that's a non sequitur, right? Like, I don't know, it, but this has millions of views, so I don't know. Goodness, truth, and beauty are just mere opinions of the human mind, unless there is a supreme mind, God, who- Yeah, see, listen to that sentence again but also moral truth and any kind of truth at all. Goodness, truth, and beauty are just mere opinions of the human mind, unless there is a supreme mind, God. Yeah, so you're, you're an anti-realist about goodness and uh, morality. You are a subjectivist. That's what my last video was partly about.
I mean, like, how could it not be clearer? Like when you have this kind of unrefined presentation of like divine command theory and divine conceptualism and that sort of thing, it is so obvious that this is just a form of subjectivism. Sorry, let me just play that sentence again, because it just it's just amazing to just hear it put that bluntly where it's like, yeah, man, you're a subjectivist. God, but also moral truth and any kind of truth at all. <laughs> Goodness, truth and beauty are just mere opinions of the human mind unless there is a supreme mind, God, who overrules all human opinions. Because and he said truth in general. Like, there's no truth in general without God. Like, what do you mean? There's no way that things would be if God didn't exist. Like, this is something you hear from, like, I don't know, not even apologists, really, but, like, if your aunt is arguing with you at Thanksgiving or something um, about God, then it's like, sometimes you'll hear this kind of thing, like, well, there's no truth without God. It's like, well, I think truth is just like the way things are, right? Like, just, you know, correspondence to reality or something approximating that. You're saying there's like nothing that would be the case if there were no God? Like there's nothing that would correctly describe reality as opposed to incorrectly describing reality? Math is beyond time, space, and limits. The existence of math proves the existence of God because math is in the mind of God. I'm just sort of at a loss for words at a certain point. Like, why do you think that? Like, why one of these things, like every sentence just like comes from nowhere. It, they don't seem related to the previous thing that you said. As the great scientist Galileo said, math is the language with which God has written the universe. Yeah, well, that was horrible. <laughs> So after the stream ended, a few more things occurred to me that had to do with the thesis, for lack of a better term, of the video. He's defending some crude form of divine conceptualism, in contrast with Platonism and nominalism, which seem like the main realist and anti-realist alternatives, respectively. Divine conceptualism is sort of like the divine command theory of philosophy of math, but it might be a little worse off than divine command theory because I'm not sure it's even a coherent position. So there are sort of two pieces of background that we need to establish before we can get there. You need to know what propositions are, and you need to know what intentionality is. That's because on divine conceptualism, propositions are identical to God's thoughts. So for humans, propositions are the contents of our thoughts. They're what our truth-apt thoughts and sentences and beliefs are about. So propositions can be true or false, just like sentences or beliefs can be true or false. But the difference is that propositions are what our sentences and beliefs are about. When you have a belief, there's something that you believe to be the case. When you make an assertion, there's something that you are asserting to be the case. That thing is a proposition. So a proposition is not the same thing as a belief, because the proposition is the thing that one believes. It's the thing the mental state is about, not the mental state itself. The proposition is the content of your belief. You could say the same sentence in a different language, and the proposition would be the same, even though the sentence would be different. Sort of like how I can say 
that tree is green, that sentence should not be confused with the tree, which is the referent. So in this video, what's being defended is a form of divine conceptualism, where propositions and other abstract objects, presumably, are identical to God's thoughts. They exist in the mind of God. So there's a big difference there, because for humans, propositions are the contents of our thoughts. They're what our thoughts and beliefs are about. But on divine conceptualism, God doesn't have thoughts about propositions. His thoughts are identical to the propositions. So maybe some classical theists would embrace the idea that God is basically just a weird abstract object, an abstract object that is somehow also personal. I mean, that's gibberish, but that's never stopped them before. But assuming you're like the majority of theists and believe that God is actually personal, meaning he's a person, at least one person, who's capable of loving you, having a personal relationship with you, etc., then you have a different problem, because you think God is a mind, or three minds, but whatever, and you think he has beliefs, being omniscient, and has thoughts. Well, given all that, divine conceptualism starts to become very problematic. God is a mind, right? He has thoughts and beliefs about propositions. So this is what philosophers of mind call, somewhat confusingly, intentionality. That's the mind's power to be about something, to represent something. Sometimes you hear it called aboutness. So that's intentionality. Okay, so what does that have to do with divine conceptualism? Well, on divine conceptualism, propositions are identical to God's thoughts. For humans, propositions are the contents of our thoughts. They are what our thoughts and sentences and beliefs are about. But how can God's thoughts be about anything? His thoughts are supposedly identical with the propositions in question. So it's not clear how God could think about propositions or anything, which would mean God's mind lacks intentionality entirely. He can't think about any proposition, mathematical or otherwise, because his thoughts are the propositions. But if he can't think about anything, then in what sense does God have thoughts at all? I mean, like, let me repeat that back to you. If God can't think about anything, then does it even make sense to say that God has thoughts? If God's thoughts and beliefs don't have contents, then in what sense does he have thoughts or beliefs? So, first, this calls into question the coherence of divine conceptualism. Second, God's lack of intentionality seems to be a prima facie problem for his omniscience, since he can have no beliefs. He can have no beliefs about propositions or have any thoughts about propositions. So, there's one other part of this video that's been clanging around my skull for the last 24 hours. The part where he said, basic common sense says someone designed this, referring to a Mandelbrot set. When you're zooming in to one little part of the set, I don't think it makes a ton of sense to say that this guy, Mandelbrot, designed that. I think he discovered something interesting about math. I mean, isn't the whole point of this video that math is discovered and not invented? But then he says it's common sense that someone designed this interesting mathematical phenomenon, as it were. So you think math was invented, not discovered. I didn't fully get this the first time around, but I think he's arguing that mathematics was intelligently designed. Well, how can it be discovered, not invented, and intelligently designed? Presumably, he thinks math was discovered by humans, but invented by God, since basic common sense tells us that the Mandelbrot set has a designer. 
But this is confusing because it seems like he's implying that Mandelbrot is the designer. So, because I actually think math is discovered and not invented, I don't think Mandelbrot or God or anyone else designed mathematics. I don't think Pythagoras or anyone else invented the Pythagorean theorem. I think they discovered it. But let's assume he did not mean that Mandelbrot is the designer. God is the designer, at least ultimately. In that case, he'd be arguing that math is discovered by humans and invented by God. But that makes about as much sense as saying Mayan temples were not invented because Europeans discovered them later on. When we debate whether math was discovered or invented, we mean it in a much deeper sense than that. Was it invented by anyone? Any observer? Any mind? Any person or set of three persons? Or was it discovered because it's objective and exists on its own, independently? So, the thesis of this video is looking more and more incoherent to me. Whether he meant the Mandelbrot set was designed by God or by Mandelbrot, what he's saying makes no sense either way. If he was saying that Mandelbrot was the designer, then that directly contradicts his premise that math is discovered and not invented. But if God is the designer, then he's arguing it was intelligently designed. In other words, invented. So his argument is, math was discovered which proves that it was invented. Like I said, that one phrase, basic common sense, says this was designed. Whether you're talking about a human mathematician who designed it, or God who designed it, either way, your argument makes no sense. And that's also why, near the end, I became so adamant that he doesn't really believe in the objectivity of math. He does think math was invented, maybe not in the same sense as those who think it was constructed by humans, but he does think it was invented in some sense that is denied by Platonists. So, I don't know if this is the beginning of philosophy of math getting its hooks in me, or if I'll spend more time with these sorts of arguments, but I can refer you to Majesty of Reason, since Joe has several videos about philosophy of math and how it bears on God's existence. Once again, if you want to hear the open hangout after the stream where we talk about the incorruptibility, quote-unquote, of saints, miracles, and tradcaths, then head over to YouTube to see the full live stream. You can also hear a worse version of what you just heard, since I edited the audio of the stream for my lovely podcast subscribers. So, thank you for listening. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll see you next time.